All right, welcome back to this next edition of uh, the Pat Davidson podcast, and I've got Joel Smith on here today uh, from Just Fly Sports, and your your Instagram is is the same, Just Fly uh, Sports, and and you have the Just Fly Sports Performance Podcast, and um, I've been the you know beneficiary of being able to be interviewed by you on there a few times, and. I've really found our conversations to be like very just enlightening experiences for me um, based on the questions that you have. And I also like I when you do breakdowns of sport movements like jumping or sprinting, you know, I, I feel as though you bring a level of proficiency with analysis that very, very few people can bring. And, um, you know, anytime like I, I just, I usually just let my brain just filter and say to myself, like, okay, this is a special talent. This is someone that has an eye or an ability to explain or something. And I really haven't seen too many people be able to do what you do. And I also just from listening to you enough, I just realized like you have a real wealth of information uh, when it comes to being able to look at people moving in sports and creating output and um, you know, like other, other coaches like, like Lee Taft come to mind as somebody else where I'm like, wow, what an eye and an ability to explain it and physically do it and teach it. Uh, someone like Bill Hartman comes to mind in terms of like just an eye for movement and understanding what's going on. And, and you as well, where it's like, boy, I really get a lot out of listening to you break things down and your interpretation of things comes from your perspective and is something that I'm able to hear and really absorb. But, um, you know, I would love it if, if you would mind, if you wouldn't mind just taking a couple minutes to introduce yourself and then we'll kind of get into some more of the formal questions after that. But if you wouldn't mind taking it away, let, letting everybody know who you are, I would love that. Yeah, sure. And, and thanks for the kind words with the, the technique thing. It, it's, um, the analysis. I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but I was, when I was like 20, I hated anything with technique. It was like mm. abrasive to me. I was like, I just want to get stronger and let my body solve the problem. I didn't even think about it that way. It's just more was whatever technique the coach is telling me didn't work. So I just kind of became abrasive to, um, even like, you know, biomechanics, but it was cool to see things change. Um, yeah. So. I, you know, there's like the, I, I think I've gotten better at uh, the maybe three minute version of these stories. I, I, you know, I've used to probably be like, oh, let me tell you about when I was six and I, this, you know, um, just have always been in love with, with movement. Um, and, and even, I guess you could say training as well. Like, I think there's, and they are almost two different things. Um, movement, the, the feeling that you get internally when you're trying to do like a backflip off the diving board, I think is, di or jump, jump a cliff is a little bit different than when you're dropping under a heavy weight, although I think they come from the same place. And so I both love the movement end of things, um, played a lot of sports growing up and even like, you know, I never was in martial arts, but I was always trying to do like aerial, like tricking, like ninja kick stuff. I just remember doing that when I was a kid, like playing tag, you know, trying to like say the things that Speedy Gonzalez, it was like a Looney Tunes show way back, you know, 30 years ago, like, cause maybe that'll make me faster, which now I'm like neuro-linguistic programming. I see what I was doing back then, you know, like, um, just I've always been in love with movement and play and sport. It's just this language that I've always has come um, naturally to me. Um, I also validating me in my teenage years because I could, for some reason, I could jump higher than other people. I was also super tall. So it's like, I just really rode that one. 
in the college, uh, in um, my college track and field experience. Um, always, I was always in love with learning at a young age too. Um, just would read the encyclopedia just for fun, like the kind of the color, you know, not the the boring, you know, probably more mundane Britannica, but just like would like endlessly learn facts. And then formal school kind of turned me off to that. Um, I just didn't didn't fit my learning style. I know it's better for some than others. Didn't fit my learning style and kind of fell more in love with video games. Sadly, it was so. It was for the longest time, mm-hmm. it was just like video games and sport. Um, went to college to do track and field. So my, um, my language, my lens is narrow ISA high jumper. Like that's the, the view, you know, of, of all this, all the different coaches and all the people who see this, that's my lens. Um, you know, sometimes I try to, you know, hearing more about how a wide ISA sprints and operates, I'm like, okay, how can I kind of sprint like that? So I can understand it more, you know, how can I, how can I get in that person's shoes? Um, cause I feel like that's one of the gateways to really understanding things is, is doing it and feeling that. Uh, so yeah, I did the exercise science degrees, um, masters and whatnot and coach track, uh, for six years in division three NCAA, uh, transitioned uh, towards the end of that time. I was just being a, a coach at a small school in division three where your job success is actually how well you can recruit and retain. Well, I mean, retaining good, but if these athletes aren't meant for college and they aren't in a, in a degree or career path, that's going to suit them when they graduate, they're probably better off failing out early, honestly, in some of those situations. And <laughs> so they, uh, so yeah, I, I started my website and, and just fly sports, which just started with writing uh, about 27. I'd always been writing to age 22, started writing just a blog kind of casual, turned it into a website 27, uh, got a job at UC Berkeley as a strength coach at 28. And I did that for eight years. I, I, I was a uh, certified strength and conditioning when I was coaching track, but I, I like track more because it was like, it was pure outputs. It's like, you know, if you do personal training, like it, yeah, it's fun to go through and get a good workout, but you also want to see like outputs on some level, like that's, that's fun and that's rewarding. And that's the process of training. And so to me, track was just pure outputs. You know, it's like I could use all my problem solving abilities to get someone to do or help not get someone to facilitate the process of someone, <laughs> gosh, there's my ego coming out, right? Like to facilitate the process of someone sprinting as fast as possible to jump as high as they can and those types of things. And uh, my early strength and conditioning internships were not, they weren't like problem solving immersive. Like, you know, you talk to Bill Hartman, it's just like, holy shit, man. Like, you know, like all the intellectual stimulation you could want. But my my early internships in strength and conditioning were like, all right, do these two things in lifting, go yell at people, you know, make sure that it, it just wasn't, there was not, I felt like there was more at the time in track and strength and conditioning was so good for me because it actually started to take away the eye out of it. Like I kind of even just mentioned, how can I get people? And it's more about, well, how, did you say every athlete's name? You have 30, 25 kids. Did you, you know, say every athlete's name that they knew you were there and that and maybe you know just it's just different there was so many good things that came from that and then that initial boredom of strength and conditioning at age you know from before became a higher level of interest the more i understood about the body and mechanics and even fun and games and human level stuff and Mm -hmm. so i was able to change um through my time there at cal in eight years and then left and 2020 summer 2020 and um, i'm private sector and then doing a lot of you know just furthering the just fly type stuff and started a podcast six years ago i forgot about that so i think i took more than three minutes but i kept it under 10 so there there's a nutshell of things 
it's funny, the more of those that you do, the shorter they get. Yeah. And like, I totally remember like the first couple and they were just like, it would be like the whole podcast. It was like, uh, yeah, so we actually had some questions, but we can't do them uh, maybe next time. But, um, you know, I, I like you, you brought up some some really interesting little gems there, you know, such as the fun and the play part and, the you know, movement versus training. But I think that, you know, the one and, and we talked before we started recording as well and just getting a, a general sense of like, you know, who you are and, and what drives you and all that stuff. And you, you started to bring up the ego part that can come with with all of us, but that it where it can tend to pop with coaches. And for sure, like we've all seen or heard some coaches that will like take credit for their athletes. Like, oh, my God, I'm the best coach. This guy that's like this multiple time NBA MVP. He's only that because of me or something like that. That's a little bit exaggerated, but it's a thing. And, you know, you've seen it, you've felt it. Like, can you talk a little bit more to that general topic? Sure. Yeah, I think it, it is. There's so many, I think, ways to go. I think one that is interesting to me, if people when asked, well, why did you get into strength and conditioning? Um, and the answer is always, well, I want to help people. <laughs> well, of course, we all want to help people, right? But like, why did you really get into it? I, I, and and yes, I'm sure that is a part of it. You know, there's, there's, um, I'm trying to think of the exact term, but there's always a, there's always a two way street. There's, there's the positive and the negative to any, any, uh, aspiration. Yes. Uh, we got in to help people. And that's the part we actually, we love. We love, you love helping someone to their, their fitness goal, their fat loss goal, their athletic goal. Maybe they made a breakthrough in a single workout where they're kind of a different person after that moment. And we've, those of us who have been in coaching long enough have seen that. And that's, like that's such a beautiful experience and none of us can deny that. But then there's also the part of, well, maybe I, for me, like I was an awkward kid in middle school, but I could kind of jump high. I was tall too. So like, felt, but I could kind of jump higher than a lot of people and people are like, wow, you can jump that high. That's cool. And like, and so for, as a middle schooler, that's like, oh, like, wow, I'm so being validated by this. This is, I want to keep doing this. And yes, I did love movement as well. And I always strive for that, but there's also that you start to identify with some of these things, these things that you stand out or you even too, as a typical middle schooler, I mean, I dragged weights up to my room when I was 11. My dad had this weight set, little Kmart concrete set, door got up to my room at 12 and did bench press every single day. And, you know, whatever kids would typically do without instruction manuals. And I wanted to be, you know, bigger and strong. And that's, that is part of a coming of age. There's, there's a powerful element of confidence in the strength, but that can also be uh, easily be a mask very easily like muscles can be a mask and mm -hmm. that's not to say anything like i respect the hell out of people who take on bodybuilding like that is a physical challenge that involves discipline that to be honest is still beyond things that i've developed yet and i would love to have that discipline on and i'm still working towards that but i think that a lot of times the the, the insecurities that may have led us to a particular physical outlet that being the negative there's the positive side of it as well and that's always the thing it's not good or bad there is this is just me, you know, speculating. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, you know, but like, I, I do believe that there is always positive and po a negative, you know, there's an angel and a devil. And I think that, you know, Carl Jung talks about the shadow side as well, integrating the shadow. And so I think that when we can see where we've come for what it is, both for the, the, the beautiful positives, but also how we try to validate that also leads to such a comp, a competition based attitude too. You know, I, I just mm -hmm. think that seeing both of those sides of the equation that can be helpful in our journeys. It's, you know, I, I love that those topics. And I, I think that there's a difference between 
diagnosing another person and then just talking about like psychological elements. And and I think that when you get into diagnosis, it's like, yeah, we should probably leave that for trained people. But just, you know, discussing some of these facets of, you know, psychology and how they influence people and, and the ways that we've seen those in our lives, I, I feel like that's totally a fair game to be able to get into. And um, the shadow stuff I find to be so interesting, especially with with having a child and sort of seeing mm-hmm. the, like, you know, I can see, like, my son is pretty bossy. And I know that all little kids can be, but he brings it to another level. And it's kind of like, as an adult, when a two-year-old tries to boss you around, there's an element where you're like, what are you kidding me? Like, like settle down there, buddy. But you can also start to push him into that being his shadow where they go the other way so hard because their little brains are very sophisticated with being able to pick up what's what's liked and what's not liked and what gets attention and what doesn't get attention. And you can stifle some of those components in somebody. And it's like that bossiness probably does have that that two-tiered or, or that kind of branched road to it, where in one area, it might be associated with some leadership related things and in the other it's probably just related with being a dick you know and it's kind of like well i don't want to strangle this thing out of him but i also want to be able to let him know like hey you know like this is something that maybe you could like corral to some degree so that it doesn't run amok and cause like you know alienation of other people uh in your life and because you can, I mean, it's amazing how quickly you can see these things. But, you know, sometimes these tendencies, you know, we, we were, you're talking a little bit about like, uh, you know, uh, politician types being psychopaths. Like that has pros to it in certain environments. And then there's cons to it in other environments. But it's like this, these, these, these fragments of personality type exist for reasons. Like they're useful in certain conditions. They can make you fearless and ambitious and aggressive. And in the right setting, that can be really good, you know, versus the wrong setting. It can be really disastrous. And um, I don't know, like, have you seen from the perspective of developing athletes, particular presentations of mindset that that maybe like just come that you think of like archetypes or things that you're, you've seen enough times to where you're like, OK, this is a thing. Like different um like mental presentations of coaches, like a coach that's a certain type that fits with athletes in a certain way. Yeah, both like the coaches and the athletes. Sure. I mean, yeah, I think, um you know, with the psychopath thing, I think that there's coaches who have those traits that can be extremely effective leaders. And I think that like, yeah, with the politicians, it's uh sometimes that leads to being a good politician because they are able to take their emotions out of it on a high level. And they also can turn on the charm just like that, you know, so that's an element that can make you a good politician. Um, yeah. And like you said, in that circumstance, that could be okay. Uh, there's been a couple presidents that have been like, pretty well-known, well-liked presidents who have been identified as psychopaths as well. So it's not always, um, from my understanding, it's not always a bad thing. Of course, it can very easily become a bad thing, you know, depending which, on Which which ones, incidentally? I'm not really... 
I, I want to say, you know, I should look this up. Like, I think yeah. on Rogan, they look at it. I, I could be wrong, but I think it was Bill Clinton and uh, JFK. Okay. Uh, and JFK was the freaking man. Like, I have a biography on him. Oh, my God. Like, that, you know, I, I want to say, I think Bill Clinton for sure. And then I think someone said JFK, so I'll have to double check my And you references. could make a good case that those are two, the, yeah. like, two of the top most charismatic ones uh, of, of all time as well, like, socially, too. Yeah, usually very intelligent as well. I think those both they both had like really really high IQ registries as well. So I think mm. that oftentimes comes with that territory yeah. also. So it's like it's interesting we live in this very interesting society with all these little pieces and that you know have to fit together intricate, intricately in this system of systems, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, you know, to swing it over to you know kind of getting into analyzing movement and jumping. And things like that. You know, I've seen videos where you've kind of broken down some differences between creating a vertical amplitude and more of a horizontal response uh, and just different directions that people are trying to project themselves through in space. So when you think about some of those, like that kind of phenomena of, of really trying to create a specific outcome, you know, what what sorts of tendencies do you see? the body presenting with under, under the different circumstances of tasks. Sure. So yes, yeah, just using, I mean, so horizontal versus vertical. I mean, you could take it. I think you could just start with just sprinting as an example. Uh, I, I just think that we, you, you know, you could take this into psychology as well. It's been um, postulated. And I would agree with this, that supination um, or is more the vertical and that represents more of the masculine, even in like a mind body type. It's a, res- it's a resisting Force. You're resisting the ground, resisting. Uh, pronation is a yielding force. You know, you're yield, you're going down into the ground. And the way I kind of see it in sprinting is I think that we are the pendulum swing back and forth. I had a guy, uh, Jeff Hauser, he's a was a I think a third place at US Championships hurdler back in the day, has tra- pushed track for 50 years. And back in the 70s, everyone just said, Well, push horizontally, push the ground away horizontally as far as like not everyone, but it was said push as long as you can, as hard as you can, which I'm sure anyone who actually tried that when they were sprinting isn't going to, it's not going to turn out that well, but then it, the pendulum swung hard all the way back to vertical. Like, so it just, whoom. now it's just, then it just became all front side, get the knees up, limit backside. And now you just screwed over one. You just kind of screwed over both the narrow ISAs. Um, mm. but, but you also, that that's not just telling that in a very rigid manner is not going to be the optimal solution for athletes. And when you watch athletes on the field and you watch the body solve problems organically, which is usually the best way to observe what, what is true and real in motion is watch a good athlete solve a problem on the, in the field. And you're going to see a lot of things. And so what we found is what well, you could just see a vertical and horizontal force and just starting from sprinting is especially 2000 Peter Wayan comes out uh, with this study that says it's vertical forces. But if you look at the nuances of that study, there's a lot of, there wasn't even, I don't think horizontal force on the plate registered. The way they measured the limb swinging through space was kind of flawed in terms of limb velocity. It is just, and, and stride frequency. Um, but I think that we latched onto that vertical so hard because it's kind of like we are living in a little bit of a world where it's like, well, show me the research study. And it's like science versus scientism, where it's like, yes, scientific method, but then also just worship of science. You know, well, PhD did this study. So that's and without even reading the study, without even looking at the methods and looking into it. And so um, anyways, research came out later that 
uh, in the throughout the 2000s, the first study in 99, there was four studies throughout a 15 year period where basically they showed that um, as running increases from jogging, like three or four or five meters a second to sprinting, the ratio of the forces, so vertical and horizontal, the ratio of the horizontal force is really what spikes. Vertical kind of stays the same. You're still just dealing with gravity, you know, up, down, up, down, but it's the horizontal, it's the rotary that is actually the big deal. Um, and, and it's almost like that wanted to be ignored. And so in just something as simple and straightforward as running, which is the basic, uh, it's kind of like a hula hoop. If I throw a hula hoop and it spins and it hits, it's rotary force that causes that thing to spin. It's not, it's because it bounces real high or because I had a high tensile hula hoop that was just springier than everyone else's. And maybe that'll help too. I mean, that'll probably help a little bit, but it's really the rotary is the core of all this. And so it's almost like we swung so hard out of that just pure horizontal in the 70s, which is also a more creative era to a more, I would say, scientism and people are afraid to be wrong, so they stick with the vertical, And but it's both. And so in each, you know, in running particularly, you have these components of both. You have the vertical support that happens when the foot hits, and you have supination and rigidity, masculine. But then from that point, you have kind of a controlled fall where the shin needs to translate. You have to start getting rotary and horizontal elements. And so they work together. It's this integration of feminine and masculine. And so... Every movement, even plyometrics, so we can take this out to plyometrics. What are most plyometrics? More vertical and supination. Their hurdle hops are all vertical trajectory, just up, down, up, down, up, down. And again, for pure physical qualities, we associate that with the masculine. That is fine because that is resisting force. That is the ability to build my body into this resistant force. But the problem is if you do that too much, you do lose that rotary speed. And if we look at any athletic skill, it is never... What player goes down the field like a hurdle hop? No, never. What? Who approaches a vertical jump like a series of hurdle hops? Nobody. It's always horizontal coupled with vertical. It's always, it's waveforms. It's like big, little, big, little, big, little. And that's kind of these things running in pairs and the coupling of these horizontal and vertical elements is something that I think that we miss partly because I think we're just so addicted to the vertical. We see vertical force and sprinting, vertical plyometrics, vertical stuff in the weight room. And, you know, that's fine in the weight room. And I think we just miss rotary and rotary is a more feminine, if you want to call it quality, because it's more integrative and timing oriented. So sorry, that was a lot, but that was, I started sprinting and kind of built it out there. No, no, no. I think it, it makes a lot of sense to me in terms, I, I understand what you're talking about with that. And, you know, to me, I feel like running is so much about like a wheel, you know, like the feet are on a wheel and the more that that wheel can just roll, the better. You know, and it's hard to know, like, what direction does a wheel put force into the ground from? You know, it's like, that's it's a really hard thing to quantify. But at any point in the, you know, the spin of a wheel, like, you can have some issues. You know, where where are the issues going to be? Like, you need this engine behind the wheel to make it spin. But ultimately, it's like, you know, I suppose it would be different if a car bounced as it was going down the road on two wheels or something like that. But it's, it's a very close approximation. Like I just see it as like, you know, our feet are a bit of a wheel. It's just that they don't like a, an actual wheel is constantly making ground contact feet as a wheel have a boom. They're just a, a, a you know, this interspersed ground contact, but it's still a very similar phenomenon. Like, and I, maybe it's because like, I don't see, I, I see air and ground is a very similar light. You know what I mean? It's just different 
consistencies. It's it's all material. You know what I mean? It's all a wheel rolling through a medium. And at one point in time, it hits a, a less deformable medium. And most of the time is spent in an in- incredibly deformable medium of gas. But it's still just like I, a lot of things to me are just wheels rolling through space, you know, uh, either like semi rolling or fully rolling. But it's just like, you know, is there a point at which the the medium interaction changes in consistency? Sure. And at that point in time, like it's it's interesting to examine at that point. But I think like what you're saying is ignoring the totality of the thing and focusing too much on this one part of it you know yeah and that's i think that is um it makes it easier in the sense of like you know like i i, I have been really fortunate to have some really good mentors uh adarian bar uh, in the biomechanics world just sees the world in a way that is completely different than a research scientist sees the world they're both good you know but like I think until you see the totality of both of them, like when I wrote my book, Speed Strength, I'm, I'm pouring over all the sprint research, just bam, 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 and then integrating what Adarian said and just trying to get those worlds together. And with, um, yeah, it's just, it kind of just does go back to that. Um, like the timing, I actually, I, I lost my train of thought. I apologize because I was just, I, I was kind of getting on that thought of things. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, the world, the, just the world being a lot more, it's a lot more rotary than we think it is. Oh, the, the convenience thing. Sorry. Um, that's where I was. <laughs> I do, I do this sometimes on my podcast too. <laughs> but, uh, like, like, I think it's because human movement is so complicated. Like, even, I mean, I mean, I, I put my heart and soul into some of these, like, you know, Instagram, like breakdowns and things. And honestly, you would think you would watch that and think, oh, well, wow, Joel's really got to figure it out. I watch movement all the time. I'm like, what the? Like, what is going on here? It takes me like, I have to watch that thing like 20 times mm. and I have to look at, cause like, not only are we a hula hoop that's bouncing, but you're also a series of spiraling. The hips are spiraling figure eight. The shoulders are spiraling figure eights the other way. We have compression, expansion. We have hands and feet doing different things and different yeah. compensations, the way the hands and the feet are steering. Like it is, there is a lot going on. And I mean, it, it human the human and not to mention too we've talked about this like i i remember at your seminar in san francisco that i attended you know we talked about the viscera the the organs like bouncing and spinning and creating that right hand rule spinning you to the left that's why tracks go left and like mm-hmm. asymmetry and pr you know pri stuff with that it's like there's a lot of shit going on man like i mean and I, and then but to <laughs> simplify this and, and again and me saying look like i I've learned from like brilliant mentors. Uh, Darian, I also learned with a, with a, from a really brilliant swim coach who was a sculpting, had a sculpting past and saw mm-hmm. swimming as a series of internal shapes and was a brilliant motor learning instructor, took a ton of stuff from him. And even still, like, despite all that, I still watch people. I'm like, God, like, it's going to take me a lot. Like, and even then I guarantee there's stuff that's happening that I still don't know. Like the body is so complex. And so within that perspective, we really like, we so oversimplify things into and again, I was saying it's, it's like a bad drill, but like, okay, if you just do this A skip, right? Well, God, that's everything you need to sprint. Well, you know, like, of course it's not like, you know, and I think a lot of people look at that and they're hopeful that that's the case because it kind of absolves you of looking into all the other shit the body does. And there's a lot of it and all the rotary stuff and all the timing. And to mm-hmm. be completely honest, you don't actually have to know it all to be a really good sprint coach at all. In my opinion, I think a sprint coach can be extremely successful without no it's kind of like bush nexator said like you get the body like close and you let the brain take care of the rest of it and i i just think that that's um 
that's really powerful. So, but just understanding that it's not these neat little positions. We love neat little positions because it's a serious form of reductionism. Like, oh, I know sprinting because I went to this thing and I learned these five like discrete closed chain slow speed drills that are easily, I can easily coach a position. I can say, well, yeah, you're not sprinting fast because you didn't put your limb here in this drill. It just doesn't work that way, in my opinion. I get, I'm not saying those drills are useless. I, I think they all, they carry value, mm. but I just don't think the value relative to all the complexity, like just think five, six hula hoops all going at once when you're actually rolling, like it's just totally yeah. different. So no, it's, it's yeah, the, that it, reduction. It's like an cool. acid trip a lot of the times when you yeah. really get into like, because I feel like there's for me, there's moments of visual epiphany for me with understanding movement and you know i can i i'll just my brain will go to weird places like i'll just picture being a hundred feet up and looking down at people walking and like being like oh my god a thorax is a rocking horse you know what i mean it's just a rocking horse that's going back and forth like but it's it's like going through space you know like it's just a it's it's a and then i was like well, a rocking horse would just be something that would spin if it had the ability to have its little uh, element go all the way around. It's really just a ball. It's like a ball that just is constrained by like not spinning all the way. And then it just swings back and forth a bit like the pirate ship ride at the fair, you know. And then it's like, oh, maybe planes, maybe all planes of movement are are just because I was like, oh my God, everything is kind of that. Like a shoulder joint is just another like pirate boat ride that swings, but it can just swing further. It goes all the way around if it wants to. And oh, like everything really is that. And the more of those things that are able to swing on their own, independent from each other is planes. Like that's all it is. Like it just gives you, but like, it's an imaginary construct that we come up with planes to just make it more categorical to understand that because like you, when you start thinking and you, you mentioned like going inside and thinking about like viscera sloshing around and then like, Oh my God, like, cause you don't consider that. And, and so all of these, these things, like the levels of it and, and trying to, to have some glimpse of it to me, I just think is like, uh, I, I think that we put up so many safeguards with our brain. Like I, I equate it to the, the brain acts a bit like an ostrich where it can be overwhelmed. So it just sticks its own head in the sand, you know, and by doing that, it doesn't have to deal with the full nature of reality, which is just way too much for anybody to actually try to cope with. It's just, it's, it's so trying to make discrete packets that you can work inside of is so much easier. Hmm. And and I try to do that on purpose in the aftermath of some of these thoughts of like, well, how do I take this thing that's so overwhelming for me and make it more usable? And then I just kind of try to make a category for everything. And categories to me are just like very useful. And so those things like an, 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 ISA, an ISA angle and like, okay, we got these narrow folks over here and kind of the wide folks over here. And that's one of the best categories I've ever heard of for really sort of showing big picture stereotypical biases of movements uh, between groups that you'll see as a coach. And and I know that you're kind of familiar with with that model and you've thought a lot about that. And like, 
when you're thinking about some of the coaching for narrows versus wides, like what, what sorts of things go on in your head for working with each group? Yeah. One of the big things I look at is, I mean, it depends on the skill on a level. Um, and I guess like the language, but for me, a lot of it is, I, I would say just like at the rudimentary level, um, I look at how uh, wide squat and just move and reciprocate. And a lot of times it's, they're very much stuck in late stance, just if I could just get you mid stance. So just being more, giving them more awareness of that part of their foot when they're even just doing like really simple stuff, like just lun- like basic walking lunges and things like that. And when they're doing their squatting, um, I think that they're more receptive sometimes to things that are on the ground. Cause like if they're a more ground person, I, Stuart McMillan said something about that a long time ago, athletes who are, like to use the ground more, they might respond to things that involve the ground from a cueing or what do they resonate with people in the air might resonate with things in the air a little bit more. Um, I would say, I, you know, I like the idea of, and it, it is interesting too. I remember, you know, Jake Tura, who's a uh, really big in like vertical jump, knee pain type stuff. And he's like the opinion, he's like a wide, wide ISA. And I, I think, you know, we, we get these categories and we instantly think we can make so many distinctions. I don't think it's, I've had wides that I trained and I thought they were narrow. <laughs> this was like three years ago. Like, I thought you were a narrow, you're a wide. And I, and I thought all oh, the narrow stuff, I thought, and it worked just fine. You know, it was like, no problem. You sprinted just fine. And like, so I, I do want to be, um, I, I am always a little bit sensitive to like trying to overdo it and, and yeah. over categorize. Uh, but I'll give wides more like more like segmental rolling stuff, typically like just boring segmental rolling on the ground um, with the rotation. Uh, usually like let them get go a little harder with the lifting, the axial loading, the narrows. Uh, not that narrows can't be stronger. It's not good for them on some level, but I'll, I'll tend to go about that. Uh, the one of the big things, too, is just being uh, the Adarian bars called it loose and tight joints. He's like one one seminar. He's like athletes are the loose jointed or tight jointed. And I was like, okay. And I was like, I guess, yeah, you're right. And like, I, I mean, I'm so loose. Like, it's just crazy. Like my arms will fly out the back when I'm running or whatever. And uh, part of, I, I had this realization that a lot of wides, I mean, you have compressed narrows, they're really compressed up top, but like a lot of times wides aren't going to get the, the, the arm carrying back in a lot of things that narrows will. And I remember I used to coach a wide, like, you know, I was, we were just doing some sprint stuff and I'm like, here, this guy's got his arm back here on acceleration. And you're just all in the front. And like, the guy just has terrible like shoulder flexion and extension. He's a wide ISA and he's been powerlifting for like six years. Like mm. I can't, you don't even have this range. And so just kind of understanding the, the, the more the generally again, cause narrows can get it too, but the more tight jointed nature, oftentimes it comes with wides too, has changed how I will cue them from a limbs in space perspective. And I guess a lot of that stuff I kind of leave to. All right, well, let's just do some movements outside of sprinting or running or jumping and just get better at those. And you know what? You'll probably integrate it on your own, you know? Um, so that, that, those are a few, like just kind of basic ones. You know, you talked a little bit about like front side versus back side and like one being maybe the front side being a better approach for your wides. Or maybe, you know, like we kind of maybe got there because of this research analysis that probably looked at just like pure, almost compressive the compressive component, the the part of running that's the compression moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but have you seen more in that area of like that? Yeah, maybe wides are these front side dominant folks and that narrows are going to be. And look, like maybe the distinction isn't the best term, you know, just wide ISA, narrow ISA. But like 
as a general sense, the tight joint, loose joint, we're always looking for like a distinguishment between people to help uh, increase the probability that we'll have the right trajectory for them. But on that front side, backside, that conversation, I, I you know, I'm, I'm curious more, a little bit more what you have to say there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm glad you brought up like, you know, it's like you learn about this and it's like, oh, wait, it's just it's kind of a spectrum of wide and narrow and you have different. And but like you said, you have to have categories at first to increase the probability of being right at first when you're a beginner. And yeah, you're going to screw some up when you're a beginner, you know, but you're going to get better at it. So it's like, yeah, you need to start there. Uh, Rick Franzblau uh, is the Olympic sports head strength coach at Clemson. He's also uh, one of Bill's mentees, Bill Hartman's mentees. He's in his mentorship program. And it's been really cool to see what Rick's done with Bill's work. And they have a ton of like force plate, Nordic like data, like all the data you want too. So it's like wides, narrows, how do they produce force on the force plate and all this type of thing. Um, and that's another area you could go into as well. So uh, oh, and I will say too, uh, just one of the last caveat with the wide, uh, working with the wide, trying to get him to jump higher. By the way, this would be another, I, I get, I, I'm, I'm so intuitive sometimes. Like I'm not that good at category. You asked me the question. I, mm-hmm. so I can like tell you, Oh, this is what I did with this guy. Like, uh, so I'll just, I will touch on this and yeah. I'll get into wides and narrows in the front side is that this guy, you know, big, strong football guy, you know, squats 400 or whatever. And his vertical is like, when we tested on this jump mat, it was like 18 inches. Like, so it's like horrible. I mean, this is a, just jump mats are inflated. So the regular mm-hmm. force plates will tell you what you go. And then if it's a just jump mat, it's going to tell you like five inches higher. So just oh, for wow. reference. Is that so, much of a difference? Too? Oh, it, it's a big, inf- but it also does good things with the mind's perception of how high you're jumping. We could talk about that too. I love yeah. that. I, which, which this mat I use called the plyo mat. They have just jump mode. So it's like, you know, if I want athletes to feel good about themselves, bam, I could press that. And everyone's going to jump <laughs> five inches higher. Oh, yeah. But then you have to, like, reconcile that later in the program. And that's going to be really difficult, you know, and, oh, I you jumped that that day. Anyways, um, one of the things I realized in learning more about the wide and narrow is this guy was so pushed forward, so late stance, uh, and and really kind of relatively internally rotated in his uh, femurs more than he should be. When he dropped down into that vertical, he just instantly went late stance. He had no time to create force whereas what we've been trying to get him to do is just get pulling back in the mid and then on the way down trying to give him more er so one of the big things i've been doing is kettlebell swings on a slant board so Hmm. you get your heels or mid stance earlier and it feeds you more er on the way down so when you look you drop you look more like those guys jumping 30 40 or 35 40 at the combine so that's one area i've taken him i mean but granted if you had a, a narrow who had the same issues they probably could help for them too so like that's just being aware though you're super pushed forward uh you get a late stance real quick like this i'll give you uh anyways rick had said that and this makes all the sense in the world wides uh use a lot more compress they're great at compressing real fast and then almost like and they they don't have as much of an access to that um late stance like space behind them in in gate so they will naturally be a hit the ground harder front side comes more easily to them especially an acceleration type person and that's really important because i am starting it's cool because like the more you see of all the little windows and all the things you realize well that's why that coach loves front side mechanics and that athlete it worked really well for you know like you could say that and it comes i think it comes naturally to those individuals Mm -hmm. and so if i'm a wide isa and it just feels good to really pop off the ground and get front side more quickly relatively speaking, I'm probably going to coach all my athletes like that. Um, 
but if I'm a narrow, <laughs> then and that is not going to be the best idea or strategy. Um, and wides can also more easily maintain a lower center of mass and acceleration. So there's going to be some specific characteristics that come with that. Narrows have a harder time with the low center of mass. They are going to be a little bit higher center of mass oriented in acceleration. There's some things you can do with the arms actually to offset that, that I'll watch Nero solve the problem very brilliantly. Like Abby Steiner, is a, she set the record in the NCAA 200. She was a former soccer player, so she has all those problem-solving instructions from soccer. She starts with her arms more down, a more down-oriented action to help lower her center of mass, which I don't think coaches told her to do that. I think it's just stuff that comes out. We watch this athlete brilliantly solve a problem. Um, and then in upright running, that narrow is going to favor, they do better with more backside action and more backside total mechanics. Uh, they, and they also create really good collisions on the front side. They have that just pressure system that allows for that. So you'll see some of these Carson Warholm is to me, the epitome of a narrow in that perspective. He obliterated the 400 hurdle record, uh, 400 meter hurdle record, not this past world championships. He only ran a few races this year, but the year before. And if you watch him sprinting, you just see this long start with this massive backside action. And it's like just sending this foot straight down to this super collision in front. It's like a, such a narrow way to run. Oh, I could never, never do it. But if I told Warholm, like, all right, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to run these mini hurdles, these wickets, and I want you to get your knees up and you're going to run your race. Like, oh, it would hurt. That would mess him up, man. Like, <laughs> so, and then another thing Rick talks about is, um, how heavy, like heavy sled stuff, or even like sled, heavy sled marches. That's a wide ISA type mentality. Heavy sled marches because it's compressed, 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 and front side, front side. A narrow doesn't work that way quite as well. Um, and so they do better with like generally just a little bit lighter like resistance. So like where a wide could do a heavier sled, a narrow needs like a lighter experience because otherwise they might orient the pelvis forward too much to solve that mm -hmm. problem and just won't look good. It probably won't feel good. So there's those things that kind of, I'm sure you could see it show up in data points. Like if you had a 1080 sprint with a cord that told you, you know, you're probably going to see it on some level on the readout, but there's also watching the athlete, knowing what their tendencies are and knowing that one size doesn't fit all with this stuff. And again, you could start with the, I think it's okay to start with the drills, but just notice, just notice how athletes actually run when they go run their fastest, you know, like that's all yeah. that's, I think that's the only ask is okay. Do the drills. That's fine. But when athletes sprint their fastest without thinking about anything, watch how they solve that problem. And you can learn so much from that based off, you know, their structure and um, what makes them up. You know, um, I'm just as a, like a follow up on the, you kind of said like, that's such a narrow way to run the race <laughs> and with the collisions that you're talking about. And, you know, one of the things I've seen is when you break down certain jumps, like dunks and things like that with, with guys that create this massive negative shin angle before the vertical projection um, and the way that they'll drop their center of mass and all, all those kinds of things to like, to do like to create these appropriate collision angles. When you say that narrow way to do it, like, are you specifically referring to like creating a little bit more of like a negative shin angle and like an early stance approach to the, the, the collision point? Yeah, hundred percent. I'm glad you mentioned that too, because that's another where 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 another where another place where people try to go one size fits all. Like long jump and track is a good one. And if you go to a track meet and you stand by the takeoff board, you'll hear all these coaches saying, you know, short last step, you know, short last step and drive the knee. And I I've seen an athlete lose two feet on their jump in one season by a coach hammering them with that. Like it was a football player who just went out and jumped 19A, and then the coach is like. 
telling them that every meet and now they're jumping 17 10 before you know it's like that um but what you'll see is you'll see narrows who will totally flip-flop the shit out of that like there's a guy juan miguel acavaria who you look at this guy narrow narrow like probably a pretty narrow narrow dude um i say and this guy takes an insanely long last step i mean it's crazy instead of long short he goes short long and and to get that long last step which is major he also rotates his shoulders so far way farther than a lot of people could but the reward for that is is you can watch like zach levine and you know people are probably more familiar with like zach levine in the nba than like zach levine very similar very long last step and we when you look at like physics that long last step is a lever that is going to project you upwards. So the foot's going to hit pretty far in front of the hip, relatively speaking, especially the shoulder. So that gives you more room to really take that and translate that up versus a really short last step. It's like, well, I hope I maintain my speed and you're kind of, kind of going to go out. Mm. But for athletes, you want to be able to, if I'm a basketball player, I should ideally be able to solve that jump problem in a variety of ways. And of course, I might have less options if I'm a wide, but I still shouldn't be constrained to just, it. That's what it just bothers me when coaches just give these cues without thinking about where there's no room for the athlete to explore that, that thing that they're, you know, based off their levers and positions. And so whenever I set movement like drills up for athletes, it's always to allow them to explore something within a range um, or explore a rhythm. And how did that feel to you? Oh, it sucked. All right. Well, let's not do that. <laughs> you know, like, and so it's always, there's always that exploration range given to people. Right. Um <clears throat> You know, another thing that I've, well, I mean, just the, the jumping thing I do find really fascinating because like, I'm just from such a non-jumping background, you know what I mean? So it's like a completely different world to me and, and I'm just not, you know, so I, I, I've seen you kind of do these like forward projection things versus vertical projections. And, you know, when you'll show even like the way that the wrist will kind of toggle to help the person like manage space and timing and rhythm and and be able to give them access to that last step. I just find it so fascinating because it's just like an area that I've never looked at, but then it's like, wow, this is such a a whole world of like how many things happen in such a short period of time. Oh yeah. In like such a kind of an automatic way. And then trying to solve for that is, is insane. And I've also heard you kind of talk about like, even with acceleration parts, like the, the metronome-like action of the shin and the way that if it can tick back and forth to a very large degree, that it's that's like what you're kind of looking for um, from a mechanic standpoint to make someone a really good accelerator. I think I'm getting that right. But, yeah. um, you know, when I think about the whole nature of some of these topics, it's almost like, and, and a lot of what you've been talking about in general is people will get so fixated on one side of things. You know, maybe it's front side mechanics, backside mechanics, or maybe it's, you know, knees over toes, you know, or, or just some of these areas that, that tend to just become these camp areas in sports. And the weirdest thing, you know, like who the hell would have thought that like knees over toes on squats becomes this like this identity camp and tribal association thing. But <clears throat> When you start looking at, uh, I think, like the big picture of movement, as I think you do from almost, I, I just see you being like removed from a lot of that. Like, it's just like, hey, let's just look at the damn movement. Like this person did an incredible job. 
what did they actually do? Let's just look at it. You know, um, where do you see maybe some of the biggest mistakes you've made or other people make with that overall lack of just appreciating the totality of it? Yeah, that is a question that I have been thinking about. And I'm, I'm really passionate about this topic in general. And it is simply this. The answers are found in nature. And like, we look at all these great inventions. Like I just saw, I saved this to my, um, a file on my computer because someone had modeled like the, the Blackbird fighter jet because they saw a bird and they modeled like the frame after this bird. And like how many inventions have become because mm-hmm. of something that we have seen in this absolute brilliance, no matter how you thought nature got here, you know, whatever mechanism, you know, divine cosmos, what evolution, whatever combination, you can't deny that even just do, this is, insane like you know i'm waving my hand in front of my the screen like it is insane the complexity the brilliance like we will still be people talk about the nervous system we'll be figuring the nervous system out and still be confused for Mm -hmm. so many decades i mean it is this absolute marvel and so for me i just find it interesting that we revert to I, i mean again we need categories like you said we need to simplify but at the same time we don't observe nature enough and I think we also, as a society, it's like, you know, like, like we both have kids. Like I want my kids sometimes to be bored. Like I want them to be bored so that they're forced to like, you know, I think more people used to probably just observe things. I think it came, might have came natural in the past to just spend more time observing things. You know, we, we now we can very, and I, I will say like having a phone, I watching movement has been a really amazing thing for me, but I, it was, you know, it was a Darian bar that turned me on to the idea of a lot. You, you go to a track clinic and these coaches would, say oh well here's how i coach this and they're going to do this and they're going to do this and then you watch the athletes actually compete and they don't do what the coaches told them there's something that they're doing that's not what was told why are they doing that well they're solving the problem the way nature solves the problem if you watch like dogs run deer like a fish freaking swimming like it could someone coach a fish to swim better than it swims Mm. like seriously like no, I mean, and again, I mean, humans are a different category because I think we we have a more diverse skill set. You know, we are the most dexterous, you know, living thing on this. We can throw, we can climb, we can solve problems, we can play the piano, like, you know. But it's it's humans in their natural environment. Um, the swim coach told me this. He said Fijian swim like swimmers that he met from like the Pacific Islands who were never coached, just grew up in the water and just just purely were able to learn like a child learns had just this purity to their stroke that was not manufactured. It wasn't coached. And I think when we watch elite athletes and we don't think of them as these like, oh, there's just a freak. They're just, they get away with it because they're a freak. And we throw that mentality out and we say, well, well, what are they doing? That is amazing. Like what, like Bob Hayes in 1964, 68 ran nine point, And I, I start my presentations with this oftentimes ran 10.01. I think they rounded it down to 999 on a cinder track in lane one. And they just ran the steeplechase. So this like super shitty, terrible resilience track, 999. I almost guarantee he wasn't being coached with any sort of technique. Ran insanely asymmetrically. I mean, so asymmetrically. It was crazy. And just blew all these guys away. And now here we are, you know, over 50 years later with all the fancy, you know, technical coaching and methods. And the guy that, you know, wins the Olympics runs two tenths faster on like the world's bounciest track ever in super spikes. And we think that all this coaching with the most complex machine on the planet that we model technology after with watching birds and things. I just think we have to have such a healthy level of respect 
for watching an athlete competing in their natural environment and learning from that. And so <laughs> to answer your question, I, I do think we need categories to get us started, but at the same time, we must, it's almost like alongside those categories and movement categories, we should be watching elite athletes and just maybe, you know, you learn as you go. And, and I think not everyone loves watching. I mean, a Darian Barr has watched a bird take off in slow motion for three hours. Like that's beyond, I can't do that. You know, like that's beyond my uh, patience level. But I do think that we should just be <laughs> teaching to watch the whole thing with some things in mind more often than we do. And to say, hey, look at this athlete who's supposedly breaking the rules, but this is why they're doing it. Don't you appreciate that? That that's so awesome that that athlete did that without a coach telling them to, you know, like, mm-hmm. don't you appreciate how we solve problems? So that's just a really big area in, in, in these answers. And it's almost like the symbiosis. It's like, you know, this great symbiosis of all these things. And just to respect that, it's almost like the answers are within you. You know, you hear that sometimes, like the answer is already within you. Yeah. And, and that also takes the ego away from me as a coach, because I'm not sitting here trying to like manufacture everything. I mean, there's some things I want you to do and some things I'll say and some constraints I set up and let you explore. But ultimately, you have the answer. How can I help you bring it out of your system that you have already? That's such a beautiful uh, kind of way to end that there. I, I really love that. And it's interesting because I'm always after like I, I completely agree with that mindset of like. The right answer, it's packaged in the in the organism. You know what I mean? Like, it's going to come out. Like, evolution didn't spend billions of years to get to this thing with all of the lessons learned from your ancestors in real-life vetting problems of life and death situations of interacting with the environment and having to run and having to do all – like, I mean, we're talking survival. There is no better vetting process than surviving in the wilderness and having to have the physical tools to be able to avoid being lunch for, for something else and to make other things your lunch. Like, that's the ultimate test to me. And, like, you know, the, the possibilities of ways to solve for all of the physical challenges that exist, they, they have to be iterations on the, in a mathematical scale that we almost can't conceptualize. But at the same time, I do think that, first of all, I think that like exercise science and movement analysis is so new that it's like we're just, you know, the hubris that people bring to it of thinking that they're the ones, the group that like solved for the movement problem. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, let's let's slow down and say like, wow, I I noticed this thing. It's pretty cool. Let's talk about it. Let's let's kind of explore this thing. But like. I don't know, like, to me, if if appreciating the complexity of it, it has to always remain a backdrop in your mind. But at the same time, the pursuit of trying to witness what you're seeing, and then to be able to understand why those things work the way that they do, and then to be able to facilitate drills that can express those things. I do look at that as the ultimate pursuit, like, like, I don't know. It's like a combo of of appreciating the vastness of the complexity and at the same time, the ambitiousness, ambitious nature of someone that's like, I will still devise a scheme to manipulate and drive this to an incredible level of adaptation so that it beats everything else that was ever put forward before me from any other coaching perspective. You know, like 
to me, it's like there's got to be like those are the two, the devil and the angel on the shoulders of, of like a great coach. And when one begin and there's always like, hey, this one's going to become more dominant at a certain time and this one's going to kind of lack. But they need to kind of ebb and flow relative to each other To in, in my mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually like to follow up on that because it's easy for me to say, well, the answers are found in nature. Just do what nature does. And but but coaching and training does involve I, you could call it the more masculine element of things. The feminine is the problem solving ability that is innate in nature, as I see it. The masculine is creating the structure that will cre- that will let out that that timing, that ability. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a you have to have a structure. Otherwise, you're not even you know, I mean, it'll roll out the ball. Hey, I'm coaching soccer. Just roll out the ball every day. Do whatever you guys want. Like. Of course, that's not going to work. You know, that's not that's not what coaches do. So a good example would be uh, for like, let's just say running how I would blend that. And again, I just think so much in life is integration of all these these different thinking qualities, masculine and feminine. So you could say, all right, well, we want to run better. All right. So let's roll out. You know, mini hurdles are very common in training, like little wickets, like you know, two, four inches high. So let's say uh, I'm going to roll out these wickets, um, a very uh, an over masculine way of coaching that over the four inch hurdles is to say, all right, now. We're going to run these wickets and I want you to step over high knees. And I want you to step over your knee as you're running over them, because that is now instead of the athlete just solving the problem. Now it's I, I put something in your head that might take away from how you can solve it. So rather um, what I evolved to doing and I, I did this in, in club track. I watched like kids with this with children was uh, like 10 to 12 year old kids if i lined up some four inch mini hurdles in front of timing gates and then they ran over the mini hurdles and then went through the gate their time would be faster because it like the mini hurdle and i didn't tell them anything i didn't say do this or that they just ran over them and then ran through the gates more faster mm-hmm. um but what i eventually started doing was with the older kids uh, but that didn't always work with the older kids as well because the older kids kind of already knew how to run more like they already had that program kind of and then you don't want to over manufacture so I would just let them run through and then just give them constraints. Hey, run through with one arm, run over the mini hurdles with one arm and then maybe bring the other arm in, you know, when you get to the end or here's a, like a little, like David Weck has his little like pulser, like these little shaking eight ounce weights you put in your hand, like you get a vibratory sensory feedback response. Your hand. Go run over with one pulser in your hand, like do just different things, but don't, don't have your go-to be telling them how to solve that problem first. Give them a chance with the constraint. You know, or, you know, the constraints, hey, we're going to run, um, you know, four by 30 meter flies today, or we're going to run 10 flies till you run, you know, slower or whatever. Like you always have that masculine, here's the, here is the frame, but then you have to give athletes room to solve it. You have to. And I just think, I, I do think that, um, for some, I think weights, it's easier to, for people to try to like e- even more so because you can get away with it even more in weights telling someone to do someone a certain way because you won't see the performance decrement as much as when you go out and jump and say hey try to jump like this hey mm-hmm. try to sprint like this and that's why i like you know, and that knees in for the win article you wrote about five years ago you yeah. had talked about just setting people up on the tripod here feel that there's your masculine and then kind of letting them go and then they solve the problem versus over hey you know you really got to shove your knees out here and you got to do this you know like we just try to over insert ourselves into whatever it is the individual is doing rather than giving them space to solve it on their own now you mentioned you know track surfaces and different shoes and things like that who do you think is the fastest person that's ever lived dude i don't even know i <laughs> i mean i guess it'd be easiest to say you know same bolt but i don't i don't you know, I don't know, you hear stories of like these Greek athletes who were doing these amazing things. And um, there was footprints of um, 
aborigines in australia they were like measuring the stride length of these people running through the clay and they were just saying how insane it was and you would think that somewhere in human history maybe there was someone faster but you know i mean bolt bolt too it is interesting like because uh, he ran his best at 21 and it, it's oh it takes i think it takes a lot of ego to say he should have done anything differently you know like you know oh if he did this he would have been but i do think when you peak at 21 there's things that could have been done that you know, maybe from a postural perspective, an injury management perspective that would have kept him slightly healthier that would have allowed him to be. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, but yeah, I would say it's probably when both. do you guys usually peak in, in the hundred? Well, they should peak. The Russians had this down to the absolute science. They should peak around age twenty-five to twenty-seven, twenty-eight. Um, there's some people who are totally defying that odds, mostly from like the Caribbean, like on the women's side, you have Shelly Ann Fraser Price, she's thirty-six. You had Kim Collins from like I don't remember what island he was from at age 40 or 39 ran 999 or something. Um, but that's like the island life, I think, is a big part of that, too. I don't think you could do that. Uh, Justin Gatlin was pretty close because he I, I think part of that's because he actually had the years off with the performance enhancing drug ban. And it's almost like when you're not constantly using it up, you know, you get a chance to mm-hmm. I think it can extend you for later. It's It's kind of a combination, but. I think that because we live in a society, especially here in the West, you know, it's not the West, it's Europe, European soccer. I mean, that's a grinder, like, you know, anything like that. I mean, it's crazy, but it's almost like we always have to work. It's so hard to get to that next level. It's like, oh man, like you got to go to this camp. You got to go to this gym. You got to get this instruction. It's like just to make it. And there's no global system that's, you know, it's, it, it, I don't want to bring politics into it, but like at least the Russians had a global system that, you know, for you know, communism for better or for worse. One of the things I think it is it a more controlling organization that would be helpful potentially would be sports just because we look at like travel ball, youth sports, like escalation to get to the next level. Like it's just crazy. And I, I hope the solution emerges from the grassroots and organically, you know, that that helps children to stay um, more injury free to not specialize so early, not to burn out, you know, and all those things. But it's almost like there's no, like, even like a college coach, like a college coach wants, they want to win and they're going to do everything they can to get that athlete as fast as they possibly can to win. But there's no thought of, well, what about when they're done with their college career, when I hand them off to the next coach or anything like that? Um, you know, Bert Soren, who's the, the owner of Sorenex, told me a good story once. It was, he, he worked, a, he threw hammer at South Carolina and under Larry Judge. Um, a lot, some people know who Larry Judge was, uh, like a, just a really famous throws coach. Super intimidating dude. Like, yeah, like a must just this, it's super. Um, but this guy, they were killing it at South Carolina. I mean, these, they had like girls push pressing 300 pounds and they were destroying at NCAAs and all the throws. But Bert had said none of those people really did anything after college because it's like they just used it all up. And mm. no one thinks about that here, you know, like of, of like, Hey, how can I hand you off and leave you in a better place and still stuff to, you know, I didn't like just try to use, you know, I didn't take this like high school sprinter and use everything I had so I could make this kid as fast as I can now. And then like, then I say, oh, look at this kid went to college and they sucked. And like, yeah, maybe the coach sucked in college, but you know, you also, there's something to the, to the, um, there's something to preparing an athlete. And I, and the conversations I have with athletes I get in the summer who are going to go off and compete for the university are not necessarily, oh man, how can I max out all your stats right now so I can like put in my social media and show her how awesome I am. And yeah, they, uh, the kids I work with get better, but I am more concerned with how can I help you learn how to learn, help you learn how your body works, manage your mental state through it, 
and hand you off and you know where you're going to go through when you get to college and how can I help you to handle that better? How can I prepare you optimally for that? And I just think if we have more of that mentality, then hopefully people would peak when they should more. And I don't know why Bolt peaked at 21. I have no idea. Uh, mm. <laughs> you know, I guess maybe it's the injury. Maybe the asymmetry was too far on the bandwidth. You know, maybe the school, the, the anterior tilt scoliosis, the open rib, maybe it was too much. I don't know. I, I think it takes a lot of, I, I, I can't say that I know exactly, but I do think a lot of people peak earlier than they should just because of that over-intensification process. Mm. I mean, it's also, I, I look sometimes as like, uh, any time that you do something that you've never done before from an intensity perspective, that has an impact on your system that's hard to compare to anything else. And anytime you do something that no one's ever done before, that has who knows what kind of an impact that has on the system. Yeah. He probably did some he probably reached a level of intensity that that no one's ever done before many, many times. It would almost be like if somebody came out in Major League Baseball and threw like 115 or something like that, and you were like, whoa, like that person's probably not going to last that long. Yeah. You know, um, because it's like, well, what does that do to you? But I, I do wonder as well with like, you know, how, you know, how much of a, I got two, two questions really. Like one is how much of a difference do the does the equipment make at this point you know do you think that if you put bolt in the you know, on a cinder track with whatever the shoes were that they were wearing back then even if he trained through that do you think he's beating a guy like bob hayes or jesse owens i think he'd beat bob hayes but i don't mm -hmm. think it would be by you know maybe instead of nine five eight maybe it would have been like nine seven eight or nine eight or something okay that's kind of what i would think you know i, I i'm yeah. not 100 sure but it would definitely not be nearly as fast as what he had ran and that's a good point with bolt too i i didn't actually that wasn't something that i had thought about when I, I was just thinking from the pure physical and training perspective but yeah when you blow away a record by that much and it's only you you know like yeah i don't know what am i gonna do run you know 940 and just just try to put this away even more on you know like there's just there is it is it is interesting you know and and once you've surpassed what everyone else has done physically by so much like that is like even just setting a PR, like, you know, setting your, your lifetime best in something, you know, takes a while to recover from on a level. And I will say too, I think the Jamaicans do a good job because they didn't really do indoor season a lot, you know, with some of the longevity, like they usually didn't take indoor that seriously. Maybe they show up occasionally. It's like, it's all about the summer. Maybe there's more seasonality to what they did too. Anyways, mm -hmm. I saw that was a good point and you made there, but yeah, with, yeah, I, I would love to see what Bob Hayes would have done on a, you know, at the same time too, if he was a, Bob Hayes was a football guy, you know, maybe that, mm. that, that dirt cinder was a little bit more natural to him than maybe someone who come, has come up more. But again, too, you know, the Jamaican sprint on the grass in the off season, that's kind of yeah. the thing. So. Do you think that athletes from other sports should do more track specific work? Like, do you think there's a lot of benefit there for, for football players, basketball players, baseball players? Early on, for sure. I mean, I, I think that. At some point in your life, you should do something that's just pure outcome, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And find the event that's best for you. Um, I, I think James, the thinker Smith, had said, like, he thinks all kids should be in gymnastics, swimming, and track, like, maybe before age 12 or something like that. Just because then you get, you know, swimming, like you had said, less ground. You get bo body control. Like, I was watching my four-year-old, like, he's swimming around, like, just spinning 360s in the water. I'm like, this is great, you know, training for him. Mm -hmm. um, you get uh, gymnastics, which, again, it's all sorts of body control. And then track is just pure outcomes and you do have i think there is some speed windows of sorts that i think are helpful um and so 
But I, I think that sometimes we overdo it. It's like, oh, everybody, like all football players should do track in the you know high school. And yeah, I think it helps. I think it's good. But I mean, some track programs are horrible and just run you <laughs> in the ground. And I wouldn't do that if I was a football player. But I don't know. Maybe they should do golf instead. You know, maybe it's like that routine, like mental clarity, like process. Like I just think there's difference. If I honestly, for me to have been a better basketball player, I think track was nice for what I was confident in. But I sucked at all like the golf side of it, you know, that's like routine, consistency, not screwing mm. yourself over in your head because you're judging yourself every stroke, which I do like crazy. Like that would have helped my basketball maybe more than doing track a few seasons. So mm. uh, it's the same. It was the same season, too, when I was playing. But, you know, I just think all sports have different things to offer at certain points to fill gaps. And what do you like doing? And but I think I, I mean, I think all kids should do track at some point, not distance necessarily. Distance is a good fast way to you know, mess a kid up, like a young athlete, you know, make them too slow twitch or whatever. But mm. like the sprint events, like the hurdle events, especially like, I think all kids should do like an 80 meter hurdle race or, you know, stuff mm. like that. I think that's so good for, so good for athletes. Now, you know, I, I guess that where I was kind of going with that question in some ways, and I, I get reminded of it with, with other, you know, like, uh, like with weightlifting, you know, there's, I remember when I was like a student in, in my master's program for strength and conditioning, it was always kind of referenced like some random study. I don't even know the, whether or not it was a real study or not, but it was, it was talking about all oh, the Olympic, the weightlifters in the Olympics, when they tested them on sprints, they would beat the sprinters in like zero to 10 or even up to 20 meters. And then after that, the, and, uh, and that is the, this justification of why everybody should do weightlifting. Yeah. Or they've got these incredible vertical jumps. And, and it was like this conclusion was you get better at short accelerations and vertical jumping because of weightlifting. And I always thought, well, how do we know that the arrow is that way? What about, it could just be that you're good at weightlifting because you have these qualities associated mm -hmm. with you that are, you know, like you're a good weightlifter because you have a great vertical jump and a great acceleration capability. It, like, so I was thinking kind of a similar thing, like, does participating in track really facilitate and develop getting faster and jumping higher? Or is it just that those who participate in track are the people that were fast and could jump high anyways? So you're just witnessing it, you know? Yeah, I would say it's a little bit of both. I would say it's more, it's more what you were saying just now. Like it's more if I'm wired, like if I'm Olympic weightlifter and I'm wired and I have the ability to be a, do a standing inch vertical, a standing uh, 40 inch vert, like not that, I mean, I don't know how many people would get there without any weightlifting, you know, but if I have that ability, like, yeah, I'm probably gonna be pretty good at Olympic weightlifting. Like, yeah. you know, that's, and I'm probably gonna be pretty good at, at 20 meters. And I will say the one thing with Olympic weightlifting is I think it really trains you reactively in a low center of gravity. And so reactive low center of gravity things you're probably gonna be better at. But once you get up beyond 20, you know, maybe it's just too much compression and you need to be more expanded and you know, the way that wheel turns and creates collisions. And so I think it's a little bit of both, but I think it's definitely, and this is the fallacy I fell in, like in, in, with strength and conditioning and, and track is, you know, track, you get these strength standards. It's like, okay, well, you should be able to squat twice your body weight if you're a jumper or something like, and you know, you know what it takes for me as a narrow, who's not that wired to, to squat twice my body weight, a lot of compression that makes me not a high jumper anymore, you know? But I used to not think that way. I used to just think, oh, well, I got to get up there. So I just would beat myself up to like, and it, and I found that for me, the less I like tried hard to lift more weights and just was explosive on the track and sprinted fast and jumped into plows and threw things far, 
the weights kind of just went up more easily. It's almost like I did the good, the things I was good at and that like elevated my neural battery and it was just firing. And then whatever I chose to do outside of that weights, the weights kind of just went up easier. I didn't have to, you know, strain to get them as much and didn't have to try so hard. And so I think that it's like you, you should, your base should be what you're innately really good at, what your structure is really good. You know, for you, like strong man, like doing like mm-hmm. lifting really heavy shit in awkward ways, you, your base. And then, you know, then you can, you know, I'm sure you're kind of built to do short sprints as well, pretty well, you know, watching you do sprints and things like that. So that, those things like being a base, um, and then that could extrapolate out to other, you know, that's like your neural jam. It's, it's, it hits on the physical and the psychological level, like dopamine or what I'm good at this. I feel good about this. This gives me a sense of purpose. And then that can go out to other things that maybe you aren't quite as good at. No, it's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, I definitely fit like that, you know, compressed strength athlete sort of an archetype. And like, I remember I had someone ask me like, hey, of all of the physical tasks in the world, what's the thing that you're better at than any other physical task? And And for me, it's loaded carries. You know what I mean? It was just like, you know, if I if I'm able to, and it was funny because most of the people that are good at loaded carries have gigantic hands. You know what I mean? Like a farmer's walk or even a Husafel stone, like having the big hands is such an advantage with those particular events. And I have average size hands, but I can still like palm a basketball and people don't ever expect that. You know what I mean? It's like, boof, like how the hell is that thing stuck there? I'm like, I don't really know. I've just always like, if I grab something, I'm going to pick it up. Like, but it's, um, you know, structurally, whatever that is for me, my frame, my anthropometrics, like like that awkwardness of a loaded carry is just something that comes very easy to me. And I always found like doing more loaded carries didn't make me better at loaded carries. You know what I mean? Like it was just like, well, I can just do this for whatever reason. And, you know, like maybe marginally a little bit better, but it's just like such a in like whatever it is that allows me to do this it just happens and the things that would always make me i felt like really dramatically improve in fitness were different than that like i always felt like uh you know like the stuff that helped me really excel was like the the bodybuilding style training for just really targeting muscles you know like the more joint friendly bodybuilding stuff that i did it was just like now when I go to turn the switch on for all of the event things, it's just like I have more horsepower or whatever to be able to just to allow it to express itself. And um, on the other side, like also just like anything that I would do to improve the endurance, like some of like just the energy system work of re- repeat ability work, you know, not necessarily like these long duration aerobic things, but like a lot of repeat sort of short to moderate duration activities. If I just did bodybuilding and then that stuff, I would just really be in a great physical place to express it. So things like tempo runs were always really good for me, you know, like just with the fitness coming along with that. And then the muscular development part of it as well. I just felt like it was very complimentary for whatever reason that I don't have like a full explanation for but that's just sort of always kind of what kind of came with it. And um, and it, like you got me thinking with the way that you were talking about, like not trying to drain the, the battery all the time 
from the standpoint of the throwers that, that you were referencing at Clemson. And, and to me, that was such a big distinction was like the repeat energy system work combined with just like the muscular growth work just left me in such a good place because while it was a lot of hard work and volume and all that stuff, it didn't completely drain the battery of like, you know, the pure output, the, the hardest, most difficult, like send it full send mode stuff where it's like, if I did too much of that, I'm just like, like completely <laughs> obliterated for a long time after that. And like finding that match takes a lot of, of time and errors. I, I feel like, you know, um, I, I see that we're kind of getting from a time perspective towards like the end of, of uh, what you've got available. And I'm, I'm always curious, like when you envision like the, what's coming next, either for you or for the development of training, like when you think about the future and like things that you're excited about or interested in, like what, what sorts of things uh, are banging around in your head that you're excited about? You know, that's a good, that's a good question, Pat. I, I feel bad because I, I, um, I, I've probably been carried by the seat of my pants in life more than maybe some people would believe. I, I you know, even starting the podcast, I was like, yeah, I think I should start a podcast. I had no like mm-hmm. dreams or, or thoughts of, of much of anything. I, I can tell you what I'm excited about now and how I think that, I think that that will kind of push itself out. Um, I mean, the thing, obviously the blending, like, like Bill Hartman and and his ideas with the Darien bar has been really mm. rewarding for me with that, like biomechanics, um, just seeing movement on a higher level. Um, you know, if you had to say what, what am I excited about for me the next five years, it's continuing doing everything I'm doing, continuing to learn, um, streamlining my learning process. So I've, I've been more mindful of like, I used, I, I write a lot of journaled a lot, but it's always so sporadic. So now I have a journal where it's like, everything's in six sections. Here's the body. Here's, you know, philosophy, here's relationships, here's, you know, this business and, and X, Y, Z. So I'm, I'm trying to just be more of a professional with how I collect my thoughts. Um, but the things I'm excited about is, you know, I'm coaching my daughter's youth soccer team in a month and she's, I don't think she's going to be like amazing, this sort of soccer player, but I just love, I just really enjoy the process of like, from the kids all the way up to the pros or the college, like mm-hmm. where, you know, where did you start? Where did you finish? How can I, you know, help these kids have the best athletic experience possible? And so, like, I was even reading how Germany overhauled, they lost, a, the German soccer team lost first round World Cup exit 2018, national disgrace, went back, overhauled the youth program. They were like, all right, we're not going to do seven on seven till this age. That's way too early to do seven on seven. It's going to be two on two. There's going to be four goals. Kids will problem solve on their own. Like, I, I think the thing I'm passionate about really, Pat, I guess now that you get me on that topic is like, it's almost, it sounds like, I don't know, it's almost delusional, but it's like the whole system. It's like, how do mm. kids grow up and enjoy and explore movement to the point where we're at this place now where it's like, all right, go do this sport because your parent wanted you to go get all the extra coaching, all that, go to the extra gym, try to make the team, but then you didn't make it and you kind of did nothing. Your, your vision of fitness now is going mm. on the treadmill and watching TV or something and maybe lifting a few weights. And it's like, movement is so much more amazing than that. It's, it's, it's like, how can I get people to fall in love with the process of moving their body and everything that comes with that? I think that's ultimately where I'm headed. And maybe that's me. And I hope, I, I do believe at some point there will be this disconnection of 
it's maybe, <laughs> but I, I at least stumble this disconnection of my ego and like, Oh, I'm going to be like the best sprints coach, the best jumps coach. How can I get you to the highest outputs? And I do love that stuff. And I don't think that competitive side of me that is insecure, that drove me there is not, is I don't view that as bad. Like, cause I, I have loved that has been a rewarding journey and that competitive nature and all of this is such a powerful thing that pushes us forward. And, and I, I do love that, but I also just love, you know, going through like Rafe Kelly's return to the source retreat, which is like basically an adult parkour and nature retreat. I'm like, there is so much to movement. It's changed the way I do my sprint training. It's changed the way I interact with a typically mundane workout. I go into it. What can I learn? How can I explore this? How can I go through the waves and all the constraints and how do I feel what my body's doing and pushing myself to like a, use a little bit of risk, like going out in nature and trying to jump, make a crazy jump randomly. I wouldn't have. And, Anyways, to me, it's more like I, even a book I'm reading now, it's called The Future of the Body by a guy named Michael Murphy. It was n- written in 1992. It's like this guy's magnum opus. And it's kind of mm. like, where are we headed to? Where is our evolution as a human species taking us in terms of our movement, but not just movement, but our total integration, mind, body, spirit, all these like just almost crazy, like supernatural things we've seen from yogis and monks and what they're doing and what athletes are doing and all this crazy stuff we've seen on the field and like just it's kind of like just having this vision for you know how do we train athletes in a way that really maximizes our total human potential that's like the long view that's sitting there <laughs> in the meantime i'm just trying to organize my thoughts i'm keep doing what i'm doing with um you know just trying to further my knowledge of like even the bi- the biomechanics rabbit hole has inspired me i love learning that so it's a combination of that but i will say i i'm really excited to continue on to use sports even if my daughter quits playing i almost kind of want to still keep coaching soccer cuz i just like it, it brings me back to when I was playing soccer as a kid and I just loved it. And, and there was no, like, there wasn't even like being validated by peers or how high did I jump? And just like that, sometimes being taken back there is really enjoyable too. So I hope to keep on with that element of things, um, like growing kind of from the top to the bottom outputs and then use sports and maybe it'll meet in the middle somewhere. I'll find a happy medium for myself. Uh, I'd also like to coach high school track at some point. I've, I've been like as a head coach, I've had the good fortune to, um, meet a lot of really good leaders uh, as coaches who are coaches in the college sector. So I'd like to be able to use what I learned from them and be able to hopefully lead athletes in that way at some point. So some combination of that, probably not the best, like, you know, I, I, I concrete vision, but that's kind of where I'm headed. No, I like it. I, I just appreciate the, just the kind of inherent, almost childlike love of movement, you know, just the, the participation itself and how good it feels to be present and participating in something like that. You know, even like I just while you were talking, almost pictured like, you know, just being out in the summer at night and having your bare feet in the grass and just noticing for a minute how good it feels to have like a little bit of dew on the grass and the way the dirt is kind of in between your toes and the way that the grass can kind of move around your feet. And like if you can be in that moment and just understand that that's a wonderful thing like a gift of being on this planet and that just i don't know i just had that image while you were talking about that um and it's so lost with all of the crazy sorts of like future casting and uh you know negative past self-talk stuff that removes you from just like what's happening right now and even from the perspective of coaching people, from the perspective of being involved, from the, just the perspective of like your own humanity and others' humanity. 
and bringing those together and, and just witnessing that interaction lead to beautiful experiences that sure they can lead to these like future development, but like the development should be more pure. You know what I mean? It's about the person really being able to have the full robust experience of like being a real person, not just this machine or this like cog in a wheel, but you know, the, the totality of what's like life, should really be all about and uh yeah that i just i felt the answer i feel like in my chest in some ways that's what it's all about man i, I love that visual too you know what? i'm probably gonna go sit in the grass and you know, after after this get out of my basement and go put my feet on the grass after this for a few minutes before i i uh, get to the next uh little bit of work i have to do so mm-hmm. I, just the fact that that and that's what it's all about like what like like feeling what it means to be a human being moving and and the joy that comes with it because so yeah. often we can start to slowly disconnect that at some point not always but you know it, it's always good to just to get back to that so i love that visual well where can people find out more about you or you know be able to i didn't even know that you had this book like i'm now i'm i'm curious about getting your book and checking that out because i've heard you talk so much about a darian bar but you know, I like books because it's like I can really take my time and interact with it. And it's yeah. Just really- so, um, the, yeah, the social media like Just Fly Sports, like Instagram, Just Fly Sports, Twitter, um, podcast, Just Fly Performance Podcast. But yeah, my book, uh, Speed Strength, I wrote in 2018. Um, it was just very, very quickly with that. It, it was that integration of masculine and feminine in the sense that I had I coached track. I had been a track athlete for, well, you know, 15 years, um, you know, competing my 20s a little bit coaching track for six I was a strength coach for college track for three or four and then I'm like all right well I should write a book about it and originally it was just gonna be like this quick little like 100 page quick book and it just kept growing and growing and growing mm-hmm. and then about a year into it I met a Darian bar and before I met a Darian I had all the I guess you could call quote say air quotes like more of the masculine approach to swimming more of the force vectors and that's kind of was devoid of more of the timing elements and I met a Darian and I erased my whole first chapter and I started mm. writing it again from scratch. And I was training with him in person like every week or two. And it just blew my mind. And there's still a ton of research in there. And the more I learn from a Darian, the more I'm like, hey, this fits with this research that's been done. This fits with this. I see how this works. Mm. Anyways, it just blew my mind. I was so fortunate. Sometimes life, you know, comes at you that way where you meet the perfect person at the perfect time. I was so blessed to have met him. So, yeah, I, th- I think you'd like it. I'm biased, of course. <laughs> but that's, yeah, speed <laughs> strength. And yeah, it's on Amazon. So. Yeah, that, well, that's where you can find me and check that out. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure other people will, will, will as well. So uh, thank you, Joel. Really, it's it's very nice to have the roles reversed here because I've been able to participate with you interviewing me. So it's a it's a cool experience to to be able to to be on the other side of this. Um, and and I really have enjoyed uh, the podcast experience of being able to learn from others and. And I really took a lot away from this conversation personally. So I just want to let you know, I, I really appreciate your time and everything you put into this. Just thank you. Well, thank, thank you so much for having me. Pat. I, I love the way your brain works. It, it stimulates so much thought process on my own. And so I, I always really enjoy having a conversation with you. This was a cool flip flop. So thanks again for having me.